Je suis vraiment content d'être ici ce matin et je vous apporte des salutations de l'Église évangélique internationale de Genève, mais je suis tellement content d'être ici en North Carolina. Can I hear an amen? Yes, well, I'd like to bring you greetings from Geneva, from our church, the International Evangelical Church of Geneva. Uh, we're a church, we're about 15 months old, and it's been uh, really the most thrilling year of my life ministry-wise, and we thank God for it. And again, before I just hit the word this morning, I'd like to thank so much Wayne Knowles and David Williams and Stephen Davis for the opportunity of being able to be with you this morning and to be able to share about our ministry and the word. Well, this is Global Outreach Celebration. And uh, what a conference. I have never seen a conference like this. Yesterday was absolutely amazing. And I'd never seen anything like that, and the food was awesome. And you know, it's interesting to see how many missionaries were here, how many missionaries your church deploys around the world. And I asked myself this question as a missionary. I've been a missionary for 23 years now. What is success in the ministry? How do you define successful ministry? And this is an important question because as missionaries come and go, and as you see missionaries come and go, sooner or later, each missionary asks himself that question, am I successful? And frankly, I really want to be successful. Oh, not for me, for the Lord, right? And I assume that that is what you too want You want to set out successful missionaries. So, what are the key ingredients to successful ministry, whether it be here or whether it would be overseas as missionaries? And this morning, I would like to seek to briefly answer that question, and we will be going in just a few minutes to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at that very familiar story of Philip leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Before I get there, I'd just like to share, I've been asked to do this, but it fits really well, just briefly my own testimony, because my own testimony illustrates very well the principles we're going to be looking at in just a few minutes. So let's just backtrack a little bit, and you'll see how it all fits together. I was actually born in 1956 in Paris, France. My father was a businessman, an American businessman. My mom was a French major, and they always dreamed of going to Europe. So they went to Paris. I was born, my two brothers. Three months after, a war broke out between France and Egypt, and many foreigners left France, and they went to uh, left France, and they went to other countries, and so my family went to Geneva, Switzerland, right across the border. And so that's where I was raised as a kid for the first 15 years of my life, which is why I speak fluent French. We went to church. We went to the Episcopalian Church of Geneva. What I remember about it is great coffee, but that's about it. I was obviously not a believer. At the age of 15, I was just a normal, you know, Swiss-American confused kid. My parents decided to send me to America to go to school. So I went to the Lawrenceville Prep School in New Jersey, which was a feeder school for Princeton University, which I did not make because I didn't have the brains. So I ended up at Syracuse University in upstate New York. Good school. Um, I guess they've got a pretty good basketball team. Anyway, that's where I was. And um, after my first year in college, I, I was starting to get into... Uh, interesting lifestyle. I began to become quite immoral in my relationships. I began to explore with pot and then hashish. Grew a ponytail. It was the days of the, the hippie movement. So I became like a hippie. And um, just 
was, you know, cruising through life like that. I was a decent student, but in my heart, there was something missing, and I knew it. So I decided to take a year off of college in 1976. I was a travel addict since I'd been raised in Switzerland and everything was close. So I decided to take a year off of college and go on the trip of my life. So I went back to Geneva. I worked in a restaurant for the summer of 76. And then on June 23rd was my date of departure. I was going to take, I was going to go as far as my money would take me. My budget was $3 a day. So I took all my savings, put a backpack on my back with just a basic clothing, just the basic stuff, and I took off June 23rd, 1976 from Geneva. And if you're looking at the map, for the first month, I took off from Geneva and went through Switzerland, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Greece. My goal was simple, find sunshine and get a tan. So I went to Greece, and I found six islands, and I island hopped one per week, and I got a deep, dark tan. Yes, it is possible. I really got a deep, dark tan, and I had this white, bleached, blonde ponytail. I looked cool, (laughs) but I was empty in my heart, and I knew it. So I thought I need a job. So I went to Israel and got a job in a kibbutz, which is a farming community, and next morning, I was picking olives at four o'clock in the morning, and that was a blast for about two hours. I thought, this is not cutting it either. So I hung out in Israel for a while, and I met a guy, and um, we went to Jerusalem, and this is where God began to work in my life. I went to the garden tomb, one of the two places they believed Jesus was buried. I was an unbeliever. First one there, eight o'clock in the morning, walked in the tomb, there was the tomb of Jesus. That blew me away. I thought, this is like weird. It's like the tomb of Jesus Christ. So I walked inside the tomb of Jesus Christ, and it is empty. And I looked around, and I had cold chills all over my body. I mean, I didn't know what it meant, but I thought, this is like unbelievable. I'm in the tomb. And I walked out, and there is Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. And there, for an unexplainable reason, I began, well, I know, and the Lord was convicting me. I began to weep uncontrollably at Golgotha. And I thought, I, I don't understand this. This is crazy. So I, I, I forgot and left. Hung out in Israel for a while. Then I met a guy and he said, John, you need to go to Asia. That's where you're going to find out the solutions to life. So I left Israel, went back to Greece, up to Turkey. And I found a bright blue bus in Istanbul, Turkey. And it said, riders wanted for India for $40. I said, cool, I'm going. So I paid 40 bucks. And for the next six weeks, long bus ride, we went through Turkey, through Iran, through Afghanistan, through Pakistan, and through India down to New Delhi. I got to New Delhi. I'd been gone for five months. There was a lot of drugs. My friends were now shooting up with heroin, and I got scared. So I got off the bus, and I was really perplexed. I looked at the poverty around me. I looked at all the religions I'd seen on my trip, and I was just confused about life. And I said, I'm going home. So I bought a plane. I always had enough for a plane ticket. And the next day I was leaving, I was walking down the sidewalk in Janpath Avenue. And I bumped into a missionary who was handing out tracts on New Delhi, in New Delhi, on Janpath Avenue. Nice guy, Dutch guy, no long hair. We started talking. He says, John, can we go and have a Coke together? I said, sure. He paid. He said, can I show you one verse in the Bible? Oh, man, Christians, I knew them. They all look like me today. You know, short hair, Bibles, church. I thought, no way. You know, that is like such a boring life. He said, John, just one verse. He said, this is the 
most sold book in the world. You need to know one verse. I said, okay, fatal okay. He opened to John 3.16. He said, for God so loved the world, that's you, John, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ. I flashed back to Israel. I'd been in the tomb. I'd stood at Golgotha. I got scared. For the first time in my life, this book was history. This book was real. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, John, you got two choices. Number one, you can reject Christ and you will perish for all eternity. God will cut you off and send you to hell because your sin is an offense to, an old God, to a holy God. Or you can believe in his son who died on the cross for you and he will wash your sins away, give you eternal life. What do you want to do? Oh, man, you know, I got up and I walked out. I did not want this. This guy paid and he walked behind me and he stopped me in Janpath Avenue. He says, John, this is your last chance. Repent now. Give your life to Jesus Christ. I knew he was right. I knew I was a sinner. I believed in my heart. And right then and there, I bowed and I said, Jesus Christ, if you can truly forgive my sins, do it now. And at that split moment, the God of the universe invaded my heart. Jesus Christ washed all my sins, past, present, and future. He gave me eternal life. In fact, I knew at that instant that God had called me to ministry. I just knew it. I knew this would become now the passion of my life, to do for others what that man in India did for me. Well, this is the funniest thing. I don't have a clue who this guy is. I left. I was tired of him. He was putting pressure on me. He led me to Christ. I left him. I don't know who he is. I don't know his name. All I know, he was Dutch. And he has no idea what happened to me. Folks, I believe in cold turkey evangelism. I'm the result of it. Five minutes, one verse, totally changed my life. Came back from India. Went back to school, finished school. Became a flight attendant when I graduated. What met my wife in New York with Pan Am. And then we went out to California to get trained and go into ministry. It's been an absolutely thrilling time that the Lord has done in my life. A work that I, I just thank him for daily. Folks, that story of my life is a reminder of what God did. God did to bring me to him like what God has to do to bring all people to himself who he brings to himself. See, this is a God thing. And this is what I'd like to show you this morning, very briefly, on what the ingredients to successful ministry is. God gets all the glory. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. And this is a familiar story where God deploys Philip to lead this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, to himself. And this story briefly shows us the three ingredients to successful ministry. And you'll see how it all fits together in just a few minutes. The three ingredients to successful ministry. First of all, let me just start with point number one. You need the preparation of the messenger. You need a prepared messenger. Without a prepared messenger, it's going to be hard to do ministry. 
Look what happens in Acts 8, verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And he arose and went. See, before ministry can happen, God needs a right messenger. Now, it's actually kind of weird to think about this. You know, I've thought about this. Couldn't God just do ministry without the help of people? I mean, couldn't he just write the gospel with clouds? Could God do that? Yeah, he could do that. Could God just kind of rearrange the stars of the world into John 3.16? Yeah, he could actually also do that. I mean, his power is unlimited, but that is not the way he's chosen to do it. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's telling his disciples to go preach the gospel to every creation, Mark 16, and baptize them. God uses people. That's his plan. That's the way he works it out. In Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without what? A preacher. God's plan to reach the world has always included messengers. And it's interesting to see this about Philip. God chose a man and he says, hey, I want you and I want you to go over here because I've got a mission for you. So it's interesting to understand what kind of man he is. Well, you got to go back to Acts 6. Because actually what's interesting about this man is that he was one of those men in Acts 6 that was called by God to serve in the church. You remember the situation in Acts 6. The Holy Spirit had come and the church had been birthed in Acts 2. Thousands of people came to Christ. Much excitement, much commotion. And in all of that, the Greek widows had been neglected in the distribution of the food. And so the church remedies the problem by selecting some key men to organize this food distribution. And Philip is one of those men. And in verse 3 it says, But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Very interesting to see the qualifications they're looking for in these men to serve tables. First of all, they had to have a good reputation. And a reputation is what people say about you. Your reputation is what people say about you, especially when you're not around. That's your reputation. And Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. So they had men of good reputation. They were, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. They loved the Lord. They were, Galatians 5.16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. These men were filled with the Spirit. They walked by the Spirit. They reflected the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They lived holy lives and does not let the desires of the flesh intrude in their lives. They were also full of wisdom. It's interesting, in French, the word wisdom, sage, we say, un enfant est sage, a child is wise, meaning he's obedient in French. Wisdom means obedient. And wisdom here is truly someone who has knowledge and who applies it to his life. He's obedient. 
He was also humble. I think this is so wonderful. With a man and these men of these qualifications, their job was relatively small and menial. They were going to serve tables, serve widows. There's nothing glamorous and glorious about that. But that is what made their reputation. They were faithful in small things. They were servants. They were humble. Also, this man was a man of the word of God. In Acts 8, verse 4, Therefore, those who had been scattered due to persecution went about preaching the word. So these are the preachers, and look who's first in the list, verse 5. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. This man was a man of the word. So it's interesting, you see the balance. He was on the one hand a servant, a humble servant in the church, but this guy was a mighty preacher of the word. There's true balance in his life. And of course, he is obedient. When God says to him, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, verse 26, arise, Acts 8, go south of the road that ascends from Jerusalem to Gaza. He arose and went. He was obedient. He was sensitive to the promptings of the Lord. You know what I see here? God wants prepared messengers. Trained messengers. You see, the fields are ripe for picking. There are thousands, millions of people waiting to be led to Christ out in the world. And God wants prepared messengers ready to be deployed at any moment to go meet them. Now, I don't know about much about the man who led me to Christ in India. All I know is he was Dutch. But you know what? He was on that street on November 4th, 1976, in New Delhi, India, waiting for me. And I've often thought to myself, what did it take for that guy to be there that day for me? I think that is so cool. If God was looking for someone to go somewhere in the world today, would he pick you? Would he say, you know, you're you're ready. I need you now. I think that's a fair question because God wants to use us all, right? Do we know how to share the gospel? Do we know the basics of the gospel to be able to share Christ with someone who might need to know him? Could we use John 3.16 simply to share the basic gospel message? Guy, guy in our church came to Christ three years ago. His name is Fabien. This guy's amazing. He just got a job. He's doing moody Bible correspondence classes. He's a Swiss guy. He speaks English. This guy's on fire. He just got a job as a security guard. So he's got his little iPod in his ear and he puts the wire down behind his coat and he looks like really official like an FBI agent. He doesn't wear dark glasses, but almost. He's a really tough guy. So everyone thinks that this is part of his job. He is right now, he called me like two days ago, he listens between seven to 10 sermons a day. 
the guy is hungry for the word. And I'm thinking, wow, if this continues, God is going to use this man in an amazing way. Are you hungry for the word? Are you being trained for deployment? Now that leads to the second point. That is the first key to successful ministry, the preparation of the messenger. Number two, you need the preparation of the recipient. I mean, there's a messenger, but there's got to be someone who's going to receive the message. Well, this is a very interesting thing. Look, verse 27, he arose and he went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to him, Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He had led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. And Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. See, this is like so interesting. What do we know about this Ethiopian eunuch? Because this is where we see the sovereignty of God in evangelism. First of all, he was Ethiopian from the country of Nubia, which today is really southern Egypt or Sudan. We find out he was a eunuch. That means he had been castrated so as to guarantee sexual irreproachability as a guardian of the king's harem. He also was an important government official. The text tells us that he was the minister of the treasury under Queen Candace, queen of Ethiopia. He was in charge of all of her money. This guy was very important, and this guy was extremely wealthy. He was also a religious man. You see, it says that he had come, verse 27, to Jerusalem to worship. He had no doubt come for the Pentecost celebrations mentioned in Acts 2. That means he was probably a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. He had been converted from a pagan to Judaism, and he had come to Jerusalem at Pentecost to worship. And he was now going home. And he had traveled a huge distance to go to Jerusalem and a huge distance to go home. We also know that he was a searching man. Because though he was religious, he was a worshiper of God. It is clear that his heart is still empty. He gets saved in this passage. So he's hungry, but he does not know the Lord. He was worshiping God without really knowing him. In those days, Judaism, as we know from the Pharisees and Jesus' condemnation of him, was a very corrupt religious system. And this guy was confused. But he was hungry, and he was seeking the truth. And it's so interesting. There he is, reading the Bible, trying to figure it out. I mean, wow. This is like the missionary dream. In fact, 
When we went to France 23 years ago. This is an amazing story. Got to our little village outside of Lyon, France, and we needed an apartment, so we found an apartment over the French bakery. Now, that's cool. It's also, like, really dangerous. No kidding. This guy would get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and oh, the, the scent of those croissants, the pain au chocolat, les tartines, mm, c'était super bon. So every morning, we were just like, you know, smelling this incredible French bakery. It's interesting, when we looked for the apartment, we went down, knocked on the door, and this little short Frenchman with his white apron and his hat came in. He said, hello, a very outgoing man. And I said, hello. I said, yes, we saw that there's an apartment for rent. Are you renting this apartment? He goes, yes. And he says, um, who are you? You're, I was an American. He says, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I've come to help with a church in town. The guy, he went like this. He went, ah, ah. I said, ah. <laughs> then he told me the most amazing thing. He says, sir, my wife and I have just spent the entire year reading the Bible. We just finished it last week. We understand nothing. <laughs> then he said, can you please explain it to us? I'm going, hello. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Within a week, we had two Bible studies going. God prepares recipients. Look how he prepared me. I mean, I must have been one stubborn case. God had to take me all the way from Geneva to Syracuse to New Delhi to get me out of my world, out of my context, to break me with a little passage through the garden tomb and the tomb of Jesus Christ to get me to the point in New Delhi, India, where my heart was humble enough to be able to recognize that I was not the answer to mankind, but that Jesus Christ was. And God had prepared me for 19 years in his patience to get me to the point of surrender. I mean, what patience. What love is this? I don't know you at all. Maybe there's someone sitting here this morning and you are not a Christian. Has God been preparing you for this moment? Today would be the day where it all fits together and you realize, wow, this is the day of salvation. God has prepared me for this moment. Oh, I beg you, I beg you, do not leave this building without being sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Just cry out to him. Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord and to forgive you. He will take your life and he will use it to his glory. Maybe you're the recipient today, but you know what? He might make you the messenger next time. So you see... God needs a messenger. God needs a recipient. Now hold on to your seats. This is the coolest point. What's successful ministry? There's three keys. Preparation of the messenger. 
preparation of the recipient. Thirdly, the preparation of the circumstances. The preparation of the circumstances. You see, what's interesting is Philip was being prepared to go to the desert road. He didn't have a clue what God was working in the messenger's life. And as the messenger was going down that road, he didn't have a clue that God was preparing. I mean, the, the recipient was going down that road. He had no idea that God was preparing the, recipient, the, the, the messenger. And God had to intersect those two lives right at that key moment. And then his sovereignty, he knew that that day on that road, while that man was reading that text of scripture and had that question, boom, that's when the messenger needed to be, de- needed to be deployed. Thank God Philip obeyed. So I just read the story. Just as he gets there, he's walking by this chariot and he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, hey, excuse me, um, how could I understand unless someone explains it to me? Do you want to come up here and explain it to me? Hello, this is like the missionary coolest question in the world. Will you please explain the word of God and tell me about Jesus Christ and how I can have my sins forgiven? I mean, it's like a dream come true. He's ready, gets up there, preaches the gospel. Verse 35, he opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He obviously talked about baptism. He told him the first act of obedience after conversion is baptism. They see water, and the eunuch goes, hey, water, can I be baptized? He says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can. He says, I do. He believes, gets saved, and gets baptized. You see, folks, ministry is all about God. It's all about God. He gets all the glory. I'm the hockey chaplain in Geneva. I'm the only hockey chaplain in the history of Switzerland, ever. I've been chaplaining, I don't know if that's a verb, for six years. No one has ever come to Christ. Am I discouraged? Humanly, it would be really cool to have someone come to Christ. But it's a God thing. I'm here to sow. God will have to bring one hockey player one day and intersect with me at the right time for one of those guys to come to Christ. That's why I don't get discouraged. Say, Lord, it's all about you. It's all about you. That is the key to successful ministry. So I want to be ready to be deployed. I know that God is preparing recipients all over the world. And then he brings them together so that they might intersect. Is that exciting? So missionaries, if you are ready to go back to the field, be encouraged. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. And I just pray that someone here would think, wow, you know, I want to be a messenger. Maybe God is calling me. Lord, thank you so much because it's all about you, Lord. Thank you that you define ministry. We love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.